This is our second week of our new series called Epic Fails of the Patriarchs. The name kind of gives it away. We are going to look at uh, the great heroes of faith. That a lot of times we are, um, a lot of times we're encouraged to look at the Old Testament saints and think, you know, and to and think, well, we need to emulate them or be just like them. But when we really look at their stories, we find out that they're really a whole lot like us—people who love God, are, want to be faithful, but sometimes have some, they have some moments of greatness, but some epic fails. And really, the big story behind all their stories isn't who they are and what they've done. But it's really who God is and what God is doing in and through them and in their lives. And that's what we hope to see today. We're going to look at, last week we looked at Abraham, the father of faith, and we saw that he had about a 50-50 record with that. Uh, But God created something beautiful in him over time. And today we're going to look at Jacob. Uh, And I love this story because it's kind of a complex. We're going to look at Jacob mostly, but we also get to look at Isaac. We also get to look at Rebecca. So we get a little matriarch epic fails of the matriarchs in there, and uh, uh, we're going to see the whole dysfunctional family today. So if you would please stand out of respect for the reading of God's Word. This is from Genesis 21. It's a fairly long reading. If you can't uh, stand through it, please feel free to sit down anytime you need to. Uh, But now let's listen intently together to the reading of God's Word. And when Isaac was old... And his eyes were dim so that he could not see. He called Esau, his older son, and said to him, My son, and he answered, Here I am. And he said, Behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons and your quiver and your bow and go out into the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat, that my soul may bless you before I die." Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me a delicious food that I may eat of it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey the voice, obey my voice as I have commanded you. Go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father, such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat, that he may bless you before he dies. But Jacob said to Rebekah his mother, Behold, my my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him, and bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. When his mother said to him, Let your curse be upon me, my son. Only obey my voice and go, bring them to me. And so he went and took them and brought them to his mother. His mother prepared delicious food such as his father loved. And Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which he had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. And so he went into his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game, that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. And then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, 
that I may feel you, my son, to know that whether you are really my son Esau or not. And so Jacob went near to his father, near to Isaac, his father, and felt him and said, and his father said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. And so he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that I may eat of it, my son, eat of my son's game and bless you. And so he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. And then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him and Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see the smell of my son. It is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you the dew of heaven. And may the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine let people serve you, nations bow down to you, be Lord over your brothers, and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you, and blessed be everyone who blesses you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, we thank you for your word, these amazing stories that you have saved for us that show us so much about ourselves, but even more about your great mercy and the beauty of Jesus. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to see that, that you would give us minds to comprehend and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We, uh, I have a nightly bedtime ritual. Every night I read Harry Potter to all my kids in bed before we go to bed. We, uh, uh, we love the stories. It teaches them. Honestly, uh, if you have an issue with, J- with, uh, with Harry Potter, J.K. Rowling is a, is a Christian, and she's been very vocal about the fact that she's loaded the Harry Potter series with themes of redemption and with Jesus. And, uh, uh, and so we see them throughout. We're teaching our kids these themes as we go through there. And we just hit the part where, where Sirius Black talks to Harry Potter about Barty Crouch, uh, who's one of the, one of the famous... Uh, one of the famous wizards in the, in the ministry of, of magic. And, and, and the Barty Crouch fought against Lord Voldemort when Lord Voldemort was ra- running, raising to power. But the problem was, Barty Crouch was, was the shoe-in for the head job of the ministry. Everybody was thinking that Barty was going to be the man. He had this promise to him. Uh, and then in, the, in his struggle against Lord Voldemort, he, started to, he was so concerned about winning he was more concerned about winning and his own reputation and getting what he wanted, getting that job, that he ended up in defeating Lord Voldemort. He sunk to the level of the Death Eaters and was using violence and torture and every bad thing. He actually became just as bad as the evil that he was trying to suppress. And through that, the awful story of Barty Crouch is that through his decision to use evil means in the service of a good end, he lost everything his family, his hope of, of the job that he wanted, uh, everything slipped through his fingers and he was left with nothing. Uh, and that is essentially the same thing that we see happening in this story. Jacob and Rebecca are doing the same thing. Well, they, what they're after is good and right. They know that Jacob is the one that's supposed to have the blessing. But instead of going about it in a, in a, in a way that honors God, they go about it all wrong and it terribly backfires on them, uh, and they're literally left with absolutely nothing. And 
we can relate to this because we all struggle in the same way. There's all, there's all, everybody has something that they want so bad. And oftentimes it's a really good thing. So you want it so bad, your heart is just aching. And that's where the devil slips in and tempts us to try to get that thing sooner or in a different way than God intends by using just a little bit of evil to get the good and the same thing happens. The same thing happens to us. It ends up in disaster. Uh, ends up with us, just like Jacob, left with absolutely nothing. But the beauty of the gospel is that, um, is that sometimes nothing is a great thing. Sometimes God will even bring us to nothing because nothing is a great place for God to start doing his something. And that's the what story we're going to hear today. That's exactly what God did to Jacob, uh, and he did it and allowed it to happen for his good and his blessing. So the big idea, big theme of this story is this, that God brings us to nothing to rebuild us in the beauty of Christ. God brings us to nothing to rebuild us in the beauty of Christ. First part, God brings us to nothing. Look at, the, uh, look at ver- verses five through seven. We're just gonna read this real quick. Now, Rebecca was listening when Isaac spoke to his son. So when Esau went into the field to hunt for game and to bring it, uh, Rebecca said to her son Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat of it, before, uh, that I may eat of it and bless you before the Lord before I die. The background, here's the background. This, is, this will make this make sense, what's happening here. The background to this is that Jacob is the one who was promised the birthright. Even when Rebekah was pregnant, there was a prophecy. The Lord came to Rebekah and prophesied or promised her, saying, saying that the older will serve the younger. So they knew that God's will was from their birth was the fact that Jacob was the one to get the birthright, not Esau. There's another story right after that where Esau, who is a hunter, comes to Jacob uh, comes to Jacob after hunting in the field all day and he's starving to death. Jacob somehow has stew and he says, Jacob, give me some of your stew. And Jacob says, I'll give you a bowl of stew if you sell me your birthright. The, now the birthright was a double inheritance of all of Isaac's, uh, all of Isaac's uh, inheritance, right? And Isaac, it says in the Bible, is a wealthy man. He had lots of flocks and goats and, and everything that made you a baller in the ancient Near East. Jay, Isaac had it, right? So a double portion was a grip of money, a grip of money from our perspective. It also included you were the head of the family. Then you were made the head of, over all the family. So all the other brothers and sisters would then answer to you. It also made you the priest in those days, before the Levitical priesthood, the father of the one who had the birthright was the priest who oversaw his family. And it also included the, the Abrahamic blessing that he would be the one through whom his seed would end up becoming Jesus. Jesus would be one of his, one of his nephews or one of his great, 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 great grandchildren. Sorry. That's a big deal, right? And you read this story about Esau coming in from the field hungry and, he, and Jacob says, sell me all of that for a bowl of soup. And Jacob's like, all right, I'll do it. And we're like, what an idiot. Well, who would do that? That's the stupidest thing we've ever heard, if you understand it, right? 
to his credit, is probably he was out hunting in the field. Jacob was probably out with the sheep and was preparing food there, and he probably was unsuccessful. He probably literally was starving to death, and there wasn't any other food for him to eat. So he was really hungry and in a desperate spot. But we, we, we think of that and go, why would, why would someone do that for a bowl of soup? I would never do that. I would never do anything so stupid. Side note, the book of Hebrews Book of Hebrews says that, that Esau, it says this, this is what Book of Hebrews says. Uh, it says, uh, it says that, that Esau was a sexually immoral man and an idolater who, ba- who basically it, it equates what Esau did with trading in God's inheritance for sexual immorality or for anything like that, which happens all the time. So we should give Esau a break. But that the point of the story is this, that they, here's the deal, the setup. Jacob and Rebekah, they know, and, and Isaac too, and Esau, everybody knows that Jacob is the one who's supposed to get the birthright. But Rebekah overhears Isaac saying, I, I'm going to do that. I'm going to give it to Esau anyways because Esau's my favorite son. I'm going to disregard what God said. And so Jacob's, and so Rebekah seizes up. Oh my gosh, Isaac's going to give the blessing to the wrong son. And so she devises this intricate plan to deceive Isaac into giving the blessing to the right son. She has him dress up in Esau's clothes. She puts the skins of the goats on his hands. And and then Jacob goes in and, and pulls it off. He lies to his father to his face, as you saw three times in a row, to get the blessing that he was supposed to have but what's missing from all this? What's missing is uh, there's no God in any of this. There's no prayer. You don't see Rebecca saying, oh Lord, my God, you've promised the, the blessing to my son Jacob and we're calling upon you to remember that promise. There's no going to Isaac and humility and petitioning him. You know, oh my Lord, the, the prophecy of the Lord. There's nothing. God is totally absent from it. You know, my favorite thing about this story is, my favorite thing about this story is that everyone's dirty. <laughs> Everyone, and there's no righteous person in this whole story. Isaac is playing favoritism with Esau. He's disregarding the law of God. He's disregarding the word of God, the known word of God. Rebecca and Jacob are, are, are engaging in deception to get what they want, power struggle. Uh, Esau, Esau is, he's just completely... He could care less about the things of God. He's just into materialism and sensuality. It just runs the whole range of human sin and depravity. Uh, it just, just, this whole dysfunctional family is just showing off everything that sin is in the world. And the best part about it is, it's the patriarchs. <laughs> Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob. If you just read the New Testament, you would think they were these holy creatures who just levitated above the ground and never sinned. O oh God of Jacob, O oh God of Jacob. But this is what they were all about. Does it sound familiar? I mean, can you feel them though? Uh, they were afraid. Tim in his class today had this great explanation of, in Hebrews chapter two, it says that Satan keeps us in bondage through the fear of death. 
We're afraid of death and everything that death implies about us, our frailty, our weakness, our fear of not getting what we need to help us to forget about the reality of death. And, be, and, and that is what tempts us to sin. And they were scared, afraid to death. Rebecca's like, my son is not going to get the birthright that he deserves. And so they ended up forcing it through, trying to do their own thing to make it happen. Uh, And here's the thing. It was a good thing. Jacob was supposed to get the blessing. Most sin isn't um, trying to get something evil. There is that. But for the most part, for most of us, the way sin plays out in our lives is trying to get something good with a little bit of evil. The biblical counselors have this down when when they uh, talk about, uh, in the book of James, where it talks about our desires. We desire something good, and then the desire ends up becoming a demand. We demand it of God, or we demand it of the other person. And And when it morphs into demanding something, then we start using subterfuge or deception or other things to try and make it happen. And out of that comes calamity and disaster and despair. And exactly what has happened here. How does it end? The end of the story is even sadder that everything that they hope to get falls apart and slips through their fingers. Rebecca, who wants to keep her family together, the family breaks apart. Esau goes with the Hittite women. Jacob is forced to go into exile. And Jacob, who was in it uh, to get the birthright that he was rightfully his, ends up losing his family, ends up going into exile, and ends up with absolutely nothing. He's got nothing. I totally know how he feels. When I was first, even before I was saved, first sober, when God first called me out of awful drug addiction, my BC life. I mean, I met this guy, and he told me this story that he had been, the last time before, you know, God had saved him, he got locked up, and he came, you know, into the booking station. The deputy says to him, deputy looks him in the eye, and he goes, he goes, you know what? You got nothing coming. And the guy said, I just went back to my cell and cried, because I knew he was telling me the truth. (laughs) He had nothing nothing. And that story just resonated with me so hard because I knew that it was true for me. I had spent my entire life trying to force my will upon God and other people, and it had ended in complete and utter despair until literally I had absolutely nothing. Nothing. But there's this, this great part of the Jesus Storybook Bible talking about the Naaman, the Syrian, and the prophet Elisha. And it says that, it said that Naaman, Naaman was too proud to be healed. And it said, Naaman, the only th- all that Naaman needed was nothing, and nothing was the one thing Naaman didn't have. And it, it, the story is he becomes humble and ends up being healed. He gets the nothing that he so desperately needs in order to be healed, and that... Uh, is really what the next step of the story is. He got, Jacob has come into absolute nothingness. It feels awful. It's the worst place to be in the world. You know that. But sometimes that becomes, in retrospect, the gate through which we pass into a whole new way of life.
That brings us to second point. First, God brings us to nothing to God brings us to nothing to rebuild us. When we look at the story, we see really Jacob literally has nothing. When he gets to Bethel, he uses a rock for a pillow. Nothing says, I got nothing, like using a rock for a pillow. He says later that God sent him out with only his staff. So really, he has absolutely nothing. He's afraid. He's in exile. He doesn't know what's going to happen to him. He's got to go 400 miles, a 30-day journey to get to his uncle Laban's house, where hopefully he'll be safe, but he could easily be killed on the way here to there. Uh, and so he is, has just gone through this awful, you know, this, this deception. He's alienated himself from his father and from his brother. He's lost everything. Huge, epic fail, sin story. And that is exactly the moment when God makes his grand entrance into the narrative. And he doesn't come with this scathing rebuke for how dirty Jacob is. <laughs> Praise God. He comes with a promise, with this amazing promise. Listen to what he says. He says, he comes to Jacob and he says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. Starts out, this is who I am. Not even worried about who you are. This is who I am. And he says this, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. That's a grip of promises. That's some serious promises right there. It's, you know, and it's worth stopping for just a minute right here and saying to ourselves, what has Jacob done to merit this type of promise from God up to this point in his life? And the answer, as far as we know, is nothing. God has come to him in his mercy. It's the story of that Jacob has this dream and he sees this, this stairway to heaven. We talked about this in the Gospel of John, angels ascending and descending. And if you read the Hebrew correctly, it says the Lord had really descended the ladder and was standing next to Jacob, making him these promises. The Lord Jesus had come down to him and in his moment of absolute crisis and nothingness and brokenness and despair, he comes to him and he makes these solid promises to Jacob. And then, at that point, is when God starts the rebuilding process. So, obviously, he takes him immediately into blessing and prosperity, right? You would think so. And, and the answer, really, the, the real answer is, yes, that's true. But he didn't just dump a bunch of money on him like we would want to do. He does it in a much more beautiful way. He first, shocking, brings him into, into hardship uh, he brings him into um, injustice. Injustice. You think that, you know, even, 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 even injustice, God redeems to use for his, for his purposes in building up and rebuilding his saints. And so, you know, the, 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 the irony, of course, is that Jacob 
has been sent by Rebekah to escape his brother Esau, who now wants to kill him because he stole his birthright, or because he, he got his birthright that he had sold to him. And he's going to his uncle's house, where they all came from in Haran. Remember we talked last week about Abraham. Abraham left, left the city when God called him to go to Canaan. He went a little bit up ways and then planted in Haran. And so he's got a bunch of family there. He's headed back there to find a wife, supposedly. Uh, and the, the irony is that his uncle is way worse of a deceiver than he is. And God puts him under uh, the authority of someone who is deceiving him, who is cheating him, who is being subversive and lying and everything, and he's causing Jacob to exist under this kind of oppression and injustice to build his patience. He cheats him out of, he cheats him in his arrangements to marry his daughters. He cheats him when they make a deal about the sheep and what Jacob gets to keep, what Jacob doesn't get to keep. Laban, his uncle Laban goes out and takes all the sheep that he gets to keep and hides them. Uh, he changes his, keeps changing his wages and just being, just being an awful boss to him the whole time. And through this, being under this awful boss, God is growing him. Growing him in his patience, in his ability to love. I, my first job when I got sober, I had an awful boss who used to come up and yell, get so close to my face, yelling at me that his spit was hitting me in the face as he screamed profanities at me. And I was not (laughs) used to that, just just like say it like that. I was not used to just standing there. But I wanted the job so bad, and so I took it. And through that, through that, God built all this patience in me and kindness and the ability to love and have compassion for people that were super mean. And the best part of it was, in response to that, this guy started to change too. It was an amazing and beautiful thing. That's what God is doing with Jacob in this injustice and this hardship and this patiently enduring, uh, under suffering and under injustice. He's building him in his character. But you know what the most, this is what hit me as I was reading it this week. The most interesting thing about God's rebuilding Jacob in this time period is that the main thing that he had Jacob do was basically just watch sheep for 20 years. Just regular, everyday life. It wasn't these big, stupendous mountaintop experiences. It wasn't going up, it wasn't walking up the mountain with his son with this wood strapped to his back like his father Abraham it wasn't these big things that we tend to think are the things that make us super holy and spiritual. It was just the grind. He learned a trade. He became good at it. He continued to work at it through thick and thin. He raised kids. He loved his wives. And we can't get into that. But just imagine. Uh, and those are the things that God used to cause him to die to himself and build in him these beautiful characters, characteristics. Not the amazing thing, just the everyday grind. It's so important as we walk with God to remember that what, that's what, when we wake up in the morning, it's happening now. How we, in our relationships, how we love our wives, our husbands, our friends, our significant others, how we put up with one another's, you know, sin, and love, love each other and forgive each other 
and stuff like that. That's the, those things over the course of 20 years, those ordinary, everyday things that, are, that the epistles are full of, I have this concept I call Ephesians radical because when it comes time when God says, here's what you're going to do out of gratitude for what God has done for you, and it's all love your wife, serve your husband, raise your kids, work hard, be a good employee, all these basic, ordinary, everyday things that God calls us to do radically, to love radically in the everyday everyday things in our life. And that is the thing that God uses to shape us over the course of time to reflect the beauty of Christ. And then through, through all of it, we see God's providential care and protections behind the scenes. As you read the story, there's all these key points where Jacob's in real danger and God appears to Laban in a dream. Don't mess with him or I'll kill you. There's all these things that God is doing behind the scenes protecting Jacob and the same is true with us. Right now, you may be thinking, God has abandoned me. God is not anywhere to be seen. But behind the scenes, every day, God is working for us, protecting us, doing all kinds of things that we have no idea he's doing. And we won't until glory. And then we're going to stand there and go, that was you? <laughs> wow. Praise your holy name. And so, here, all that, slowly God is building real prosperity in Jacob's life over time. And it's not a money dump. Uh, That's secondary. Jacob becomes blessed, but it's really secondary to the real blessing that what God is doing in his life. The primary blessing is shaping him in his character, in who he is. Who he is when no one else is looking that produces a quality of life and a, and a brilliance in his life that then is able to reflect the beauty of Jesus. Not perfectly. There's some, you've got some dirty stuff going on, even with Laban. There's some, there's some trickery going on with the breeding of the sheep and whatnot, where he reverts back and forth a little bit. But for the most part, when God calls Jacob back to Canaan from the promised land, he's a completely different man. And that's the third point. First point, God brings us to nothing. Second, to rebuild us. Three, into the beauty of Christ. Remember, his brother wants to kill him. God calls Jacob back to Canaan, and he knows what's waiting for him. His brother, who's a powerful man, a wealthy man, wants to kill him, has promised, has vowed to kill him. And so Jacob is heading into real-life danger. This is the clinch. This is the point where it's super easy to go, okay, surely God wants me to, 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 I can lie a little bit because it's going to save my life. Surely it's okay for me to give my wife to Pharaoh because it's going to save my life. Certainly it's okay to fudge these numbers a little bit because it's going to save us suffering. This is, this is, this is, where the rubber's hitting the road, it's clinch time. He's in real danger. And now let's look. What's different now after 20 years? How does Jacob reflect the beauty of Christ? First, his, his radical dependence on self has been transformed into a deep dependence on God. This time, Jacob starts with a prayer. 
He doesn't end with a prayer when nothing else works. He starts with a prayer by coming before God and saying, he goes, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do good to you. You called me to do this. And then he says, please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come to attack me and my mothers with the children. He's really scared. That's a real possibility. And so he makes that real request known. That's super real right there. You hear it? And then he says this. Then he calls on God to remember his promise to him. This is deep faith. He says, but you said, I will surely do you good. I will make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. He calls on God to remember his promise to him. That is, he's not relying at this point. He's relying on nothing but on God's protection because that's all he's got. His pride has turned into a deep-seated humility. Right in the midst of this prayer, he says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have showed your servant for with, for which only my, for with only my staff I crossed this Jordan River and now I have become two camps. And Jacob is recognizing that all of his blessings are not because of what he's done, but because of God's mercy, God's compassion upon him. He has a deep sense of humility, realizing that he is just the recipient of grace upon grace, and it is, it is creating and producing worship in him. Uh, and Jacob, really, he comes into the land offering up much of his own wealth to Esau. He's not coming in demanding his birthright as he did before, willing to use deception or any other evil means to get it. He's giving up on that and offering much of his wealth to his brother. He sends flocks and goats and, and sheep and everything ahead of time to give to Esau. And then he bows to him seven times and comes in this deep sense of humility before his brother. And the third thing, the really the important thing, is that his deception has become deep honesty and transparency. At the end of the story, we see Jacob is back at Bethel, the house of God. It's the place where God had come to him and made the promise, where it come, the place where he had had the dream and seen the stairway from heaven and the angels ascending and descending it and the Lord had come down and was next to him making these promises. He's back in the same place. And this is where you hear this, there's this weird story of Jacob wrestling with an angel, Right? Now, Jacob's probably, Jacob is 97 years old right now, so he's not real stiff competition for an, ange, an angel or any wrestler, really. The story, to understand, to understand the story, you have to understand the ladder, the meaning of the ladder. Jesus mentions this in John chapter 1, where he's talking to the disciples, and he says, basically to the disciples, uh, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened, and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You know what he's saying there? He's saying, you know that story, because these guys all memorized the Old Testament. They knew all these stories. He's all, you know the story about Jacob and the ladder? And came, God came behind, beside him and was incur- made these promises to him? That was me. And you're going to see the same thing. You're going to see angels ascending and descending upon me as I do the work which creates this stairway from heaven to earth through the cross of Jesus, through his death, 
through his resurrection, the connection between heaven and earth was made that allowed, that allows Jesus to speak with Joseph, to speak with Jacob personally, but also allows us to be forgiven, allows us to be in God's presence, not because of our works, but because of God's work for us. The stairway is Jesus. He created the pathway for us. And so now the story, when you understand that, the significance of the stairway, that it represents Jesus and his finished work for us, his death and resurrection, a forgiveness of our sins, and a pathway open to us to heaven. The story, they're wrestling, and then it climaxes. The climax of the story is the angel, probably the Lord Jesus, asks Jacob, what is your name? Isn't that a weird request for in a fight with a guy? I've never been in a fight with a guy and said, hey, what's your name, bro? Maybe before, but not, not during. Never is that, no one's ever asked me. It's a weird question to ask, but in the ancient Near East, a name wasn't just a name. It wasn't just something that you called somebody, Pascal. It meant something. It was who you are, suffering. <laughs> it meant something. It described who you were. And so the angel is wrestling. Jacob, the picture is Jacob, is clinging, clinging to the angel of God for dear life, saying, I will not let you go. With all my might, I am not going to let you go. Not going to, not going to use deception. I'm not going to fall into my own sin. I'm going to hold on to you for all it's worth until you bless me. And the angel says, what's your name? Jacob could have said a lot of things. People had different, a lot of different names that they went by, things that described them. He could have said, I'm the son of Abraham. I'm the heir to the promise. I'm the this. I'm the that. But instead, you know what he says? He says, Jacob, I'm the deceiver. He got super honest. That's real, true confession. which is how it is with all of us. When God comes to us, he wants truth in the inward being. He doesn't want us to blow ourselves up or show him how great we are or say I've done this or done that or any of the, any of the things that we might be tempted to do. He just wants us to be super honest about who we really are. And Jacob got honest. He said, I am the deceiver. And you know what God said to him? No, you're not. Not anymore. So you belong to me. And he renames him Israel. Could mean striving, he who strives with God. Could mean he who is a prince of God. I think I like that one better. The, big, the, the important part to remember is the L on the end of the name, Israel. He stopped identifying him, himself with who he was and God gave his name, pronounced his name over him, and that from, he became who God was for him. His identity was based in what Jesus had done for him and the salvation that he had brought to him. And this is what salvation looks like for all of us. We come to an end of ourselves in some, some, some way, shape, or form. Sometimes it's super dramatic. 
Sometimes it's quiet. And God comes to us with the, with the, makes the promise to us before we do anything, the promise that we are his. And then over time, God shapes us over the course of life into the beauty of Christ, fulfilling his promises to us. And then we get the privilege of reflecting Christ back into the world through dependence on God, through humility, seeking God's will only through deep honesty and transparency with God in a life of confession and repentance. And through all that, God attracts people to himself so that by the preaching of the gospel, his spirit brings people to new life. That's our privilege as the people of God. Amen? Amen. I love this. I love the end of the story. We can't totally get into it, but at the end of, the, at the end of Joseph's life, I imagine that he's, that he's like one of those salty old saints that have like walked with God for 50, 60 years. Right? That's my hope. My hope. He's a guy who saw it and this, the scars of his life and his sin are ever upon him, but they were overlaid with this deep love of God that transcended all of it. I think Jacob was the guy who probably, he probably made an inappropriate joke once in a while Maybe he let a curse word slide once in a while on accident, but on the top of all that was this deep love of God that emanated from him with such strength that at the end of his life, when he was introduced to Pharaoh, he blesses Pharaoh and nobody trips. Everybody's like, yes, of course he would. That, there's nobody trips. The greater always blesses the lesser in the Bible. I hope when we all die, we're a bunch of salty old saints who God has taken from humble beginnings wherever we started and over the course of our lives through trial and hardship and oppression and injustice and everything that he does shapes us into something so beautiful that although our scars will still be there, it'll be overlaid with a deep joy and a love for God that transcends everything else. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Well, Father, we love you and we are astonished at your goodness to us, Lord. We see how you work in your word, encouraging us and blessing us. Lord, we see that you came to us first. When we were without hope, without strength. And that even now, through the trials of our life, you're blessing us and shaping our character into something beautiful just like Jacob, that will be able to reflect Jesus in the world. And so that is our prayer, Lord, that you would shape us into the image of Jesus. Not for our own, not for our own sake, Lord, but for the sake of Christ, because he is the stairway from heaven, because his cross, his death, his resurrection has made a way for us into the eternal realms of glory, And we wish, Lord, to reflect that into the darkness of the world even now. And so we pray that you would sharpen us, strengthen us, encourage us, and bless us as we seek to glorify you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.